The Remarkable Case of David's Eyes by H.G. Wells The transitory mental aberration of Sidney Davidson, remarkable enough in itself, is still more remarkable if Wade's explanation is to be credited. It sets one dreaming of the oddest possibilities of intercommunication in the future, of spending an intercalary five minutes on the other side of the world, or being watched in our most secret operations by unsuspected eyes. It happened that I was the immediate witness of Davidson's seizure, and so it falls naturally to me to put the story upon paper. When I say that I was the immediate witness of his seizure, I mean that I was the first one on the scene. The thing happened at the Harlow Technical College, just beyond the Highgate Archway. He was alone in the large laboratory when the thing happened. I was in a smaller room, where the balances are, writing up some notes. The thunderstorm had completely upset my work, of course. It was just after one of the louder peals that I thought I heard some glass smash in the other room. I stopped writing and turned around to listen. For a moment I heard nothing. The hail was playing the devil's tattoo on the corrugated zinc of the roof. Then came another sound, a smash, no doubt of it this time. Something heavy had been knocked off the bench. I jumped up at once and went and opened the door leading into the big laboratory. I was surprised to hear a queer sort of laugh and saw Davidson standing unsteadily in the middle of the room with a dazzled look on his face. My first impression was that he was drunk. He did not notice me. He was clawing out at something invisible, a yard in front of his face. He put out his hand slowly, rather hesitatingly, and then clutched nothing. What's come to it? he said. He held up his hands to his face, fingers spread out. Great Scott, he said. The thing happened three or four years ago when everyone swore by that personage. Then he began raising his feet clumsily as though he had expected to find them glued to the floor. Davidson, cried I, what's the matter with you? He turned round in my direction and looked about for me. He looked over me and at me on either side of me without the slightest sign of seeing me. Waves, he said, and a remarkably neat schooner. I'd swear that was Bellow's voice. Hello, he shouted suddenly at the top of his voice. I thought he was up to some foolery. Then I saw littered about his feet the shattered remains of the best of our electrometers. What's up, man? said I. You smashed the electrometer. Bellows again, said he. Friends left if my hands are gone. Something about electrometers. Which way are you, Bellows? He suddenly came staggering toward me. The damn stuff cuts like butter, he said. He walked straight into the bench and recoiled. None so buttery that, he said, and stood swaying. I felt scared. Davidson, said I. What on earth's come over you? He looked around him in every direction. I could swear that was Bellows. Why don't you show yourself like a man, Bellows? It occurred to me that he must suddenly be struck blind. I walked round the table and laid my hand upon his arm. I never saw a man more startled in my life. He jumped away from me and came round in an attitude of self-defense, his face fairly distorted with terror. Good God, he cried. What is that? It's I, Bellows. Confound it, Davidson. He jumped when I answered him and stared. How can I express it? it right through me. He began talking not to me, but to himself. 
Here, in broad daylight, on a clear beach. Not a place to hide in. He looked about him wildly. Here, I'm off. He suddenly turned and ran headlong into the big electromagnet so violently that as we found afterwards, he bruised his shoulder and jawbone cruelly, and that he stepped back a pace and cried out, almost at a whimper, What in heaven's name has come over me? He stood, blanched with terror and trembling violently, with his right arm clutching his left where that had been collided with the magnet. By that time, I was excited and fairly scared. Davidson, said I, don't be afraid. He was startled at my voice, but not so excessively as before. I repeated my words in as clear and as firm a tone as I could assume. Bellows, he said, is that you? Can't you see it's me? <laughs> he laughed. I, I can't even see myself. Where the devil are we? Here, said I, in the laboratory. The laboratory? He answered in a puzzled tone and put his hand to his forehead. I was in the laboratory till that flash came, but I'm hanged if I'm there now. What ship is that? There's no ship, said I. Do be sensible, old chap. No ship, he repeated, and seemed to forget my denial forthwith. I suppose, said he slowly, we're both dead. But the rubbery part is I feel just as though I still had a body. Don't get used to it all at once, I suppose. Your shop was struck by lightning, I suppose. Jolly quick thing, Bellows, eh? Don't talk nonsense. You're very much alive. You are in the laboratory, blundering about. You've just smashed a new electrometer. I don't envy you when Boyce arrives. He stared away from me towards the diagrams of cryohydrates. I must be deaf, he said. They fired a gun, for there goes the puff of smoke, and I never heard a sound. Put my hand on his arm again, and this time he was less alarmed. We seem to have sort of invisible bodies, said he. By Jove, there's a boat coming around the headland. It's very much like the old life after all, in a different climate. I shook his arm. Davidson, I cried. Wake up! It was just then that Boyce came in. So soon as he spoke, Davidson exclaimed, Old Boyce, dead too, what a lark. I hastened to explain that Davidson was in some kind of somnambulistic trance. Boyce was interested at once. We both did all we could to rouse the fellow out of his extraordinary state. He answered our question and asked him of his own, but his attention seemed distracted by his hallucination about a beach and a ship. He kept interpolating. He kept interpolating observations concerning some boat and the davits and sails filling in the wind. It made one feel queer in the dusky laboratory to hear him saying such things. He was blind, helpless. We had to walk him down the passage, one at each elbow, to Boyce's private room, all while Bolst talked to him there and humored him about this ship idea. I went along the corridor and asked old Wade to come and look to him. The voice of our dean sobered him a little, but not very much. He asked where his hands were, and why he had to walk about up to his waist in the ground. Wade thought over him a long time, you know how he knits his brows, and then made him feel the couch, gliding his hands to it. That's a couch, said Wade. The couch in the private room of Professor Boyce. Horsehair stuffing. Davidson felt about and puzzled over it, and answered presently that he could feel it all right, but he couldn't see it. What do you see? asked Wade. 
Davidson said he could see nothing but a lot of sand and broken up shells. Wade gave him another thing to feel, telling him what they were and watching him keenly. The ship is almost hull down, said Davidson, apropos of nothing. Never mind the ship, said Wade. Listen to me, Davidson. Do you know what hallucination means? Rather, said Davidson. Well, everything you see is hallucinatory. Bishop Berkeley, said Davidson. Don't mistake me, said Wade. You are alive and in the room of voices. But something has happened to your eyes. You cannot see. You can feel and hear, but not see. Do you follow me? It seems to me that I see too much. Davidson rubbed his knuckles into his eyes. Well, he said. That's all. Don't let it perplex you. Bellows here, and I will take you home in a cab. Wait a bit, Davidson thought. Help me to sit down, said he presently. And now, I'm sorry to trouble you, but will you tell me all that over again? Wade repeated it very patiently. Davidson shut his eyes and pressed his hands upon his forehead. Yes, said he. It's quite right. Now my eyes are shut. I know you're right. That's you, Bellows, sitting by me on the couch. I'm in England again, and we're in the dark. Then he opened his eyes. And there, said he, is the sun just rising in the yards of the ship and a tumbled sea and a couple of birds flying. I never saw anything so real. And I'm sitting up to my neck in a bank of sand. He bent forward and covered his face with his hands. And he opened his eyes again. Dark sea and sunrise. And yet I'm sitting on a sofa in old Boyce's room. God help me. That was the beginning. For three weeks, this strange affection of Davidson's eyes continued unbated. It was far worse than being blind. It was absolutely helpless and had to be fed like a newly hatched bird and led about and undressed. If he attempted to move, he fell over things or struck himself against walls or doors. After a day or so, he got used to hearing our voices without seeing us and willingly admitted that he was at home and that Wade was right in what he told him. My sister, to whom he was engaged, insisted on coming to see him and would sit for hours every day while he talked about this beach of his. Holding her hand seemed to comfort him immensely. He explained that when we left the college and drove home, he lived in Hampstead Village. It appeared to him that as if we drove right through a sand hill. It was perfectly black until he emerged again, and through rocks and trees and solid obstacles, and when he was taken to his own room, it made him giddy and almost frantic with the fear of falling, because going upstairs seemed to lift him thirty or forty feet above the rocks of his imaginary island. He kept saying that he should smash all the eggs. The end was that he had to be taken down into his father's consulting room and laid upon a couch that stood there. He described the island as being a bleak kind of place on the whole, with very little vegetation except some peaty stuff and a lot of bare rock. There were multitudes of penguins, and they made the rocks white and disagreeable to see. The sea was often rough, and once there was a thunderstorm, and he lay and shouted at the silent flashes. Once or twice seals pulled up on the beach, but only the first two or three days. He said it was very funny, the way in which the penguins used to waddle right through him, and how he seemed to lie among them without disturbing them. I remember one odd thing, and that was when he wanted very badly to smoke. We put a pipe in his hands, 
He almost poked his eyes out with it and lit it. But he couldn't taste anything. I've since found it's the same with me. I don't know if it's the usual case, that I cannot enjoy tobacco at all unless I can see the smoke. But the queerest part of his vision came when Wade sent him out in a bath chair to get fresh air. The Davidsons hired a chair and got that deaf and obstinate dependent of theirs, Widgery, to attend to it. Widgery's idea of healthy expeditions were peculiar. My sister, who'd been to the dog's home, met them in Camden Town toward King's Cross, Widgery trotting along complacently, and Davidson, evidently most distressed, trying in his feeble blind way to attract Widgery's attention. He positively wept when my sister spoke to him. Get me out of this horrible darkness, he said, feeling for her hand. I must get out of it or I shall die. He was quite incapable of explaining what was the matter, but my sister decided he must go home, and presently, as they went uphill toward Hampstead, the horror seemed to drop from him. He said it was good to see the stars again, though it was then about noon and a blazing day. It seemed, he told me afterward, as if I was being carried irresistibly toward the water, I was not very much alarmed at first. Of course, it was night there, a lovely night. Of course, I asked, for that struck me as odd. Of course, he said. It's always night when it's day here. We went right into the water, which was calm and shining under the moonlight, just a broad swell that seemed to grow broader and flatter as I came down into it. The surface glistened like a skin. There might have been an empty space underneath for all I could tell to the contrary. Very slowly, for I rode slanting into it, the water crept up to my eyes. Then I went under, and the skin seemed to break and heal again about my eyes. The moon gave a jump in the sky and grew green and dim, and fish, faintly glowing, came darting round me. And things that seemed made of luminous glass as I passed through a tangle of seaweeds that shone with an oily luster... And so I drove down into the sea, and the stars went out one by one, and the moon grew greener and darker, and the seaweed became luminous purple-red. It was all very faint and mysterious, and everything seemed to quiver, and all the while I could hear the wheels of the bath chair creaking and the footsteps of people going by and a man in the distance selling the special palm mall. I kept sinking deeper and deeper into the water. It became inky black about me, not a ray above came down into that darkness, and the photophorescent things grew brighter and brighter. The snaky branches of the deeper weeds flickered like the flames of spirit lamps, but after a time, there were no more weeds. The fishes came staring and gaping toward me and into me and through me. I never imagined such fishes before. They had lines of fire along the sides of them, as though they'd been outlined with a luminous pencil. And there was a ghastly thing swimming backward with a lot of twining arms. And then I saw, coming very slowly toward me through the gloom, a hazy mass of light that resolved itself as it drew near into multitudes of fishes, struggling and darting round something that had drifted. I drove on straight towards it. And presently I saw in the midst of the tumult, and by the light of the fish, a bit of splintered spar looming over me, and a dark hole tilting over, and some glowing photophorescent forms that were shaken and writhed as the fish bit at them. And it was as I began to try to attract Widgery's attention. 
and horror came upon me. She was driven right into those half-eaten things. If your sister had not come, they'd had great holes in them, bellows, and... Never mind. But it was ghastly. For three weeks, Davidson remained in this singular state, seeing what at the time we imagined was an altogether phantasmal world, and stone-blind to the world around him. Then, one Tuesday, when I called, I met old Davidson in this passage. You can see his thumb, the old gentleman said in a perfect transport. He was struggling into his overcoat. He can see his thumb, Bellows, he said with tears in his eyes. The lad will be all right yet. I rushed in to Davidson. He was holding up a little book before his face and looking at it, laughing in a weak kind of way. It's amazing, said he. There's a kind of patch come there. He pointed with his finger. I'm on the rocks as usual, and the penguins are staggering and flapping about as usual, and there's been a whale showing up every now and then, but it's got too dark now to make them out. But put something there. I see it. I do see it. It's dim and broken in places, but I see it all the same, like a faint specter of itself. I found it out this morning while they were dressing me. It's like a hole in the infernal phantom world. Just put your hand by mine. No, not there. Ah, yes! I see it. The base of your thumb and a bit of cuff. It looks like the ghast of a bit of your hand is sticking out of the darkling sky. Just by it, there's a group of stars like a cross coming out. From that time, Davidson began to mend. His account of the change, like his account of the vision, was oddly convincing. Over patches of his field of vision, the phantom would grow fainter, grew transparent as it were, and through these translucent gaps, he began to see dimly the real world about him. The patches grew in size and number, ran together and spread until only here and there were blind spots left upon his eyes. He was able to get up and steer himself about, feed himself once more, read, smoke, and behave like an ordinary citizen again. At first it was very confusing to him to have these two pictures overlapping each other like the changing views of a lantern, but in a little while he began to distinguish the real from the illusory. At first he was unfeignedly glad and seemed only too anxious to complete his cure by taking exercise and tonics. But as that odd island of his began to fade away from him, he became queerly interested in it. He wanted particularly to go down to the deep sea again and would spend half his time wandering about the low-lying parts of London, trying to find the waterlogged wreck he'd seen drifting. The glare of real daylight very soon impressed him so vividly as to blot out everything of his shadowy world, but of a nighttime in a darkened room, he could still see the white-splashed rocks of the island and the clumsy penguins staggering in to and fro. But even these grew fainter and fainter, and at last, soon after he married my sister, he saw them for the last time. And now to tell of the queerest thing of all. About two years after his cure, I dined with the Davidsons, and after a dinner, a man named Atkins called in. He's a lieutenant in the Royal Navy, and a pleasant, talkative man. He was on friendly terms with my brother-in-law, and was soon on friendly terms with me. It came out that he was engaged to Davidson's cousin, and incidentally, he took out a kind of pocket photograph to show us a new rendering of his fiancée. And by the by, said he, Here's the old Fulmar. Davidson looked at it casually, and suddenly his face lit up. Good heavens, said he. I could almost swear. 
What? said Atkins. Had I seen that ship before? I don't see how you can have. She has been out of the South Seas for six years and before then, but... began Davidson, and then... Yes, that's the ship I dreamt of. I'm sure that's the ship I dreamt of. She was standing off on an island that swarmed with penguins, and she fired a gun. Good lord, said Atkins, who had now heard the particulars of his seizure. How the deuce did you dream that? And then, bit by bit, it came out that on that very day Davidson was seized, HMS Fulmar had actually been off a little rock to the south of the Antipodes Island. A boat had landed overnight to get penguins' eggs, had been delayed, and a thunderstorm drifting up. The boat's crew had waited until morning before rejoining the ship. Atkins had been one of them, and he corroborated word for word the descriptions Davidson had given of the island and the boat. There is not the slightest doubt in any of our minds that Davidson has really seen the place. In some unaccountable way, while he moved hither and thither in London, his sight moved hither and thither in a manner that corresponded about this distant island. How is absolutely a mystery. That completes the remarkable story of Davidson's eyes. It's perhaps the best authenticated case in existence of a real vision at a distance. Explanation there is none forthcoming except what Professor Wade has thrown out, but his explanation invokes the fourth dimension and a dissertation on theoretical kinds of space. The talk of there being a kink in space seems mere nonsense to me. It may be because I am no mathematician. When I said that nothing would alter the fact that the place is 8,000 miles away, he answered that two points might be a yard away on a sheet of paper, and yet be brought together by bending the paper round. The reader may grasp this argument, but I certainly do not. His ideas seem to be that Davidson, stooping between the poles of the big electromagnet, had some extraordinary twist given to his retinal elements through the sudden change in the field of force due to lightning. He thinks, as a consequence of this, that it may be possible to live visually in one part of the world while one lives bodily in another. He has even made some experiments in support of his views, but... So far, he has simply succeeded in blinding a few dogs. I believe that it is the net result of his work, though I have not seen him for weeks. Lately, I've been so busy with my work in connection with the St. Pancras installation that I have had little opportunity of calling to see him. But the whole of his theory seems fantastic to me. The facts considering Davidson stand on an altogether different footing, and I testify personally to the accuracy of every detail I've given. Potomophobia, patient record DJ084530-Z by Brandon Fairclaw. Patient name Doe Jane, unknown. Age, unknown. Sex, female. Diagnosis, potomophobia, fear of rivers or running water. The narrative below is a compilation of information regarding the above subject. It includes narrative summaries of the events recorded on the body cameras of Avalon Field Agents AF-371-D and AF-208-B. The footage was recovered from their corpses and contained numerous unexplained digital artifacts and corruptions throughout. 
Please bear in mind that this patient's location is currently unknown, and this report is intended for debriefing of relevant teams and future field contact only. Consequently, it should not be read by anyone below code black clearance level without prior permission. The report first came into a local state health agency. Based on our follow-up interview with the caller, the young man who was called in was doing a five-day backcountry hike when he crossed a creek into a strangely well-maintained plot of approximately 15 acres. He recalled that it struck him as odd that it wasn't more grown up with grass and weeds, and by his estimation, he was at least 40 miles from the closest road. It was also noticeable that the trees and bushes on that plot of land were markedly different than those he had encountered in his exploration of a larger area. They primarily consisted of thick and twisted trees, coiled together like ancient snakes of gray and speckled black, their limbs intertwining above small, thorny bushes that seemed of little purpose than to prevent entry or cause pain. He almost turned around right then, both from the fear of trespassing and of running afoul of those briars. But then he saw the small ramshackle house nestled in the middle of it all. It looked very old, half rotten, with part of the roof having collapsed at some point long before. He felt momentary relief at the idea that no one was going to shoot him or call the police for him being on their land, as the house was obviously abandoned. Except, it wasn't. The next moment, he saw an old woman shuffle to the doorway and look out bleakly. She only stared for a few seconds before shuffling unevenly back inside, but even in that brief glimpse, he saw enough to say she looked unwell and seemed to have something wrong with her mouth. This was the reason for his call once he had cell coverage again. While he didn't know enough to try and intervene on his own, and he certainly didn't want to frighten the old woman by coming upon her out of nowhere, he felt sure that she must either be homeless or in need of some kind of elder care to stay so far away from the world in such terrible conditions. A series of phone calls led to the discovery that the land in question had actually come into the possession of the state as of January 1st, 1994. It was part of 200 acres that had once been owned by a man named Peter Jacobson, and he had died without any heirs. After some discussion and using the rationale that it was state-owned woods, it was decided that a local wildlife officer would go to the property to perform a welfare check and initial assessment of what, if anything, needed to be done. When he did not return after 24 hours, plans began to formulate to send deputies into the location. In the interim, our organization received a back-channel communication from one of our assets in the area. The initial reports were of limited significance, but they did match rough location records we had in archival of some kind of event that occurred in the area approximately 170 years ago. Knowing that time was limited before local law enforcement arrived, we immediately dispatched two field agents to the location with the goal of completing Tier 2 scouting prior to the locals' arrival. The operation went very poorly. The field agents entered the property from another angle than described by the hiker, but they also had to cross a stream before noting the land's transition. The body cam footage is clearer during this initial phase, but becomes notably more choppy as they approach the house. They announced themselves loudly, but received no response. The front door is not only wide open, but partially off its hinges 
and in accordance with Tier 2 scouting of private domicile, the agents announced themselves again as they entered the building. Agent 1, AF371-D, remarks to Agent 2, AF208-B, that the interior smells terrible, and both men can be heard faintly gagging as they walk down a short hallway into one of the two rooms within the house. The floor is littered with dirt dried leaves, but among these are numerous dried husks that were later to be confirmed desiccated corpses of various animals. As the cameraman adjusts to the meager light inside the room, a dark figure can be seen squatting in the corner. The agents, clearly startled when they notice the old woman, her eyes wide and glittering as she stares at them. Agent 2 tells Agent 1 to be at low ready field agent's parlance for low-level tactical weapon readiness as Agent 2 approaches the woman carefully. The woman rushes forward and Agent 2 catches her. She appears to be sobbing and moaning as she hugs him. Agent 1 approaches and between the two body cams it becomes clear that the woman is in a wretched state. She looks emaciated, dirty, but worst of all her mouth has been stitched shut with some kind of thin metal wire. Later, metallurgical analysis showed that it was primarily an amalgam of silver and copper. Regardless, while Agent 2 is clearing the second room, Agent 1 utilizes a small multi-tool to clip the wires and free her mouth. Agent 1 begins to call to Agent 2, saying that the poor woman's tongue has been cut out. Agent 2 returns and reprimands Agent 1 for cutting the wires on sight and before they knew what was going on. He says he found the state wildlife officer dead in the other room, with his tongue ripped out as well. And the next few seconds are very chaotic, as there is a great deal of movement and noise, as well as numerous digital artifacts rendering moments wholly unwatchable. Agent 2's camera shows the woman smiling at the two men as she pulls something from a fold in her clothing and stuffs it into her mouth. Video Forensics has identified the unknown object as being consistent with the size, shape, and coloration of the tongue missing from the wildlife officer's body. She has completed the act before Agent 1 notices anything is wrong. Agent 2, however, appears to have seen her motion in his peripheral and begins asking what she put in her mouth. He clearly didn't expect a verbal response, but he gets one just the same. The audio cuts out and does not ever return approximately one and a half seconds into when the woman begins speaking, but the brief sample we do have cannot be identified by our linguistics team. Regardless, sound is not required to see the effects of her words. The camera's view twirls and twists. The agents are lifted and flung around the room, Agent 1's camera going black first. Agent 2's camera lasts until they are outside, and the final image it shows is of Agent 1's broken body floating through the air toward one of the small creeks that run around the property's edge. Behind his corpse, you can see the wildlife agent's body floating as well. Local law enforcement arrived before our extraction team could be deployed, so it took some amount of effort to retrieve the agent's bodies and effects, but between what was ultimately recovered and what was encountered by law enforcement at the scene, we have some idea of what occurred. The agent's body, as well as the wildlife officer, based on a copy of that autopsy, sustained numerous compound fractures and organ ruptures in the span of a few seconds. 
Her bodies were then levitated outside to where they were ultimately found, acting as a kind of crude dam in one of the creek beds surrounding the strange property. Despite the massive damage to their bodies and the gear, each of the three men had one unharmed object stuffed into a pocket. A small, molted brown egg. While we were unable to obtain any of these three eggs, reports were that when broken open, they all contained dead baby chicks with monstrous deformities. Supplemental report regarding documents finally supplied by archival after two requests. Apparently, the property in question was once called Four Rivers Crossing. It does not show up on any map after 1843, but older maps made in the area show 15 acres bordered on all sides by running water. It appears that the four rivers are actually the double intersection of two rivers, not the crossing of four. Either way, it is a geographical anomaly that people of the time felt warranted a name on the map. It seems likely that they also felt it could be useful to keep something imprisoned. There used to be a small village near Four Rivers Crossing. The locally made maps of the early 1800s called it Tolleson, and the only account of a reason for the town's demise was a reference to a plague that came to the town in 1846, though the descriptions weren't those of a disease, but of murder and, quote, blasphemous depravity. Whatever the reasons, nothing more is known about what might have happened in Tullison. It simply lived, then died, lost somewhere in that deep wood near where the creature lay trapped and waiting. But whatever that woman is, she appears to be afraid of crossing or unable to cross a river. A search of the boards of the property confirmed what the old maps show. Every side is completely bordered by running water. It's merely a pair of crisscrossing creeks at this point, but the water still flows. Perhaps that would have been enough to keep her in for decades or centuries more. But then someone freed her and made her whole, gave her means to break water long enough to cross. It should be stressed that we know next to nothing about how this creature operates, how she was trapped, if she was truly trapped at all. It is a mystery to us beyond the basic mechanisms. Do not assume that this limited knowledge is a form of understanding or some kind of advantage we possess. As it stands, we have no understanding or advantage. If you receive this information regarding this patient, report it immediately and only through code black channels. If you encounter this creature, do not engage and immediately retreat to its safe location before calling for assistance. Also be advised that one of the blue notebooks was not recovered, and it must be assumed she may have it and any information it contains. If you notice any abnormal behavior from any member of the metallurgical, video forensics, or linguistic teams, or any other member that has had contact with materials from this case, you must notify your supervisor or a member of the containment unit. This includes strange dreams and suicidal ideation. No exceptions and err on the side of reporting, as there have been several episodes already. End of report. Hey everyone, I hope you enjoyed tonight's stories. I know I did. They were both really fun to read, really interesting ones. It just so happens that they both kind of deal with water in a way. Uh, the second one much more than the first, but 
Either way, I liked them both a lot. The second one definitely gave me um, SCP vibes. If you don't know what SCP is, it's basically a gigantic online wiki with a bunch of, like, fake things. It's kind of like Area 51, but creepypasta. It's really, really cool, and it's a really amazing community. And I've actually been thinking about reading a couple of them on the on the channel, but I've been nervous about it because they're very kind of like that second story was. They're very, like, what's the word I'm looking for? Like, clinical, almost, because they're written like reports. But some of them are really, really unsettling, really, really interesting as well. If you're interested in something like that, let me know. Maybe I can squeeze in a couple of them between these longer videos. Uh, nothing like more content, right? <laughs> anyway, let me know which story you enjoyed more down below, the classic one or the newer, uh, more modern story. I like them both a lot, but I think I actually like the first one a little bit more. It was There was something really interesting about it. While you're doing that, I'm going to take a second to think of a lot, to thank all of our $5 patrons and members. Thank you to Absinthe Alice, Amethyst, Amat, Anne Berry, Bubbly Panda, Caroline, Christina Smith, CT, Deborah Tychus, Elizabeth Watkins, LSG, Frankie Brockway, Furious Weasel, If and Doubt Flat Out, Jennifer Dameron, Jesse Jess Jess, Justinia Zaromsky, Karen Parrott, Kat, Kathy Flanning, Kelly Sprague, Laura, Lindsay Pruitt, Melody Evans, Melissa Berwick, Mindy Bannon, Moon Potato, Nicholas Moore, Nora, Nova Nocturne, Patricia Rodea, PJ Masks, Ray Clegg, Sentinel, Shy Shy 420, The New On Golem 24, Tiger Princess, Tish Love, Triumph, and Victoria Step. Thank you all for the amazing continued support. That list is getting longer by the day, and it's so, so appreciated. It really helps out as well. Thank you all for the amazing support. Thank you to everyone who shows up to the videos, leaves a like, leaves a comment, shares the video with someone. Uh, and like I said, let me know what you think about these two stories and what you think about me reading a couple SCPs here and there on the channel. Hope you all have a wonderful day, afternoon, or evening, wherever you are. And as always, stay safe out there.